Hi, it's Adam. Uh, before we get to what's going to be published here, I wanted to give you a little update on what's going on and why these are being published. Uh, so if you're my friend on Facebook, uh, you may be following the updates on what's going on with me, my health. Um, if you're not my friend on Facebook, by the way, you can go to adamhorton.com. There's a contact tab, and there's a link to my Facebook page from there. My Facebook is public, so you don't have to be my friend in order to see what's on there in, in case that matters to you. But in any case, I know a lot of listeners are my friend on Facebook, and you know if you're not, um, <clears throat> I'm going to be going in for a bone marrow transplant in just a couple of weeks. And this is good. Uh, the six months of treatment that I've had so far have uh, have the goal of getting my leukemia into enough of a remission that bone marrow transplant is an option. Uh, if the bone marrow transplant is successful, um, I should be cured of this cancer. Live the rest of my life, watch my kids grow up, all that good stuff. Um, have a donor. It's my brother. Really, we're just hoping that goes well, and I'll be going in for that. Uh, from everything I've heard... Uh, it's not going to be pleasant. I'm going to be in the hospital for at least a month. And then when I get home, I'm going to need a lot of care, a lot of hospital visits, and it's going to be a very long time until I have my life back. Uh, that on top of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, my second child came five weeks early and uh, we had a lot on my plate. In any case, um, <laughs> the podcast, right? Um, I'm not going to be in a position to publish more episodes of the podcast for quite a while. And uh, bone marrow transplant has a lot of risks. There's a lot of additional chemo and radiation I'm going to be getting. Um, and so I've got, uh, I've got some stuff on my computer, some episodes, some mini-sodes of the podcast that were recorded, uh, some of these a very long time ago. And, uh, it just doesn't make sense for them to sit on my computer anymore. We don't have a regular publishing schedule. Uh, it's going to be a very long time if that ever happens. I've got four minisodes, and I want to publish them. Uh, one of them is one that Jake and I did um, in preparation for Parker being born <laughs> over two years ago. Um, we just never needed these. Uh, the other three are th uh, three things that Wandering Winter made, uh, mostly for the same purpose, but some of them came afterward. So... Uh, I'm going to publish all these. You're going to be able to listen to them. But there's a very, very good chance that um, that's going to be it for content on the podcast for a long time. I don't know how long that's going to be, but if you want updates on that, uh, probably my Facebook page is the best way to get them, unless you want to like message me, go to the Discord server, or, or anything like that. Uh, can't promise you I'll be in a state to respond to it, but... Um, that's where we're at. So, um, hope you enjoy these mini-sodes, and, uh, man, I, I hope that, uh, I hope I get back to doing this soon. Well, the hate is gonna hate, 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 and the faker's gonna fake, 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 fake. I'm just gonna make, 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 making luck, making luck, a mini-podcast. Making luck, mini-sode, mini-sode, mini-sode. This is Wandering Winter back with another Making Luck mini-sode. Today, I'm going to talk about counters. Uh, not counters like little pieces of stuff that you have to keep track of stuff. Like in Magic, they have plus one, plus one counters, or charge counters, or minus one, minus one counters, or loyalty counters, or whatever. Right? I'm not talking about that kind of counter. I'm not talking about like a tracker 
um, Dominion, like you have tokens, right? Victory point tokens or coin tokens or uh, the pirate ship tokens or whatever. I'm not talking about that, the trade route tokens. I'm not, I'm not talking about those. Those you could call counters tokens, very similar. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more conceptual here. Um, so it's like a, a countermeasure or a counter strategy, right? Uh, if you do this, then I can respond by doing that, which is good against the thing that you did, which means that you should maybe think about not doing the thing that you did before you do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Strategic counters. Um, it's kind of the interactive flip side of synergy. Um, so it's not anti-synergy. I have two cards that do things that aren't good together. Um, but it's I am doing something strategically it's I'm doing something strategically uh, that uh, is good against what you're doing strategically. Um, and I don't mean this just in terms of saying uh, this strategy is more powerful than that strategy. So it's not better than what good against what you're doing because it's just overall better, right? Um, I, I don't mean that because I wouldn't call that a counter. That's just that's just a better strategy. Uh, what I mean by a counter is that um, what we're talking about is is a strategy that's specifically good against an opposing strategy, uh, more so than just being good in general or objectively. So I'm not talking about a str- stronger strategy, I'm talking about a counter strategy. Um, I, a, a word of kind of caution and warning, though, um, most of the time there is just something that's just better than everything else and there's some amount of interactivity and some tactical considerations that you have to make for well given that you're doing this I need to play slightly differently I need to play a longer game but it's not like the whole strategy is changing um, so so there's there's some level of interactivity and, and strategic thought encountering what your opponent does um, that's that's kind of baked in all the time uh, but I'm talking about kind of a, a larger shifts, uh, mostly in this episode. Um, so the most the most famous example, I maybe not the most famous, but I think was probably the most famous example, um, not in Dominion specifically, but in general, uh, gaming of of a counter, a strategic counter, a counter strategy is rock paper scissors, right? Um, so if I play rock, you can counter that with paper. If I play paper, you can counter that with scissors. If I play scissors, you can counter it with rock. Um, and you notice that no, nothing is just the best strategy here, right? Everything else, everything has a strategy that beats it. Um, rock, paper, scissors, obviously, is no fun if you're playing it uh, sequentially. So, you know, you have to play and then I can play because the, the, the counter is so obvious. So it's played simultaneously. But uh, that's not the, the case for a game like Dominion, which is turn-based. So I can, in Dominion, I can look at what you're doing and then react to it. So that gives a different kind of strategic uh, complexion to the game than you would have for a simultaneous game like, like Rock, Paper, Scissors. Um, but I think the nature of there having to be at least three things is something that's interesting and something worth talking about in the context of Dominion as well. If there aren't three different strategies, then you can't really have a counter so much, uh, just because if there's only two and A counters B, then it's kind of, at least for that board, 
A is just better than B. And that's maybe not so much a counter. Um, in the grander scheme of things, maybe on different boards, that wouldn't be true. But um, at least if you're just talking about a specific board and saying this strategy counters that strategy on this board, that only kind of makes sense if there's a third strategy that, uh, that also comes into play, right? And this is getting into starting to talk about how these things play out, right? Um, let's say you have strategy A, which is prima facie, what I would think maybe, oh, well, A seems like the best thing to me. But then here's B, and, and if, I, if I go for A, you go for B, and you're going to beat me because B plays really well against A. Um, so what, what do you do, right? What do you do in this kind of uh, situation? Well, um, you got to go for e e either it's not really a strategic counter situation, B is just better, in which case you just go for B. Um, but the thing is, in a lot of cases, B itself is maybe not inherently powerful. So if you just play some generically bland strategy, uh, or, or a third strategy in general, but often that's a generically bland strategy. Like, the ultimate straw man here is, is some kind of a big money strategy, um, right? Like, oh, well, that would have lost to money. Well, yeah, so maybe you don't want to go straight for B because somebody who just ignores it and goes for money is going to be better off. So what you need to do in these situations is have some flexibility, right? You're going to go for something uh, that can move between A, B, and C, your three different strategies, or maybe there's more than three sometimes. But you can move between a few different strategies, going for something that will be generically or generally a good improvement to your deck, um, while not committing too hard to A, uh, because then your opponent can counter it with B, not committing too hard to B because they can counter it with C, etc. Right? If, if there's some some counter available, you can't commit too hard, at least too fast. Um, so usually there's, or maybe not usually, but very often there's some timing component, right? Um, after a few turns, if you haven't committed very hard to strategy A that's getting countered by B, then if your opponent hasn't invested heavily in B, or heavily enough in B, then maybe by now it's safe enough to go for A because by the time they get their counter strategy online, you're far enough ahead. So you really have to work out some of the timing on this uh, in a little bit of a complex manner. Does my opponent have enough time to go for the counter now and still have it be effective? Um, so that's that's something to keep in mind. Um, Another point that, that was actually the, the genesis, the, the source idea for the episode that I want to make is uh, because of this kind of interplay where you don't go for A because B exists, uh, it's very possible for these cards or events to have an impact on the game even if nobody ever buys or gains the, uh, some of these cards that are very associated with their counters, right? Um, if B is a tremendous counter to A... Uh, then, well, maybe you never go for B, maybe you never go for A, um, you go for C, and, and you would go for A if B wasn't around. So B had an impact on the game, even though nobody bought it, because nobody was going for A, right? Um, anyway, this is all abstract. I'm talking A's and B's and whatever. So, so, so let's get to something a little more concrete, a little better examples um, the, the very simplest uh, kinds of counters that you can have are like your reactions to attack cards, right? 
Lighthouse prevents the attack. Moat, you can prevent the attack if you have it in your hand. Guardian prevents an attack. So this is the very simplest thing. It, it says it on the card itself. I'm not going to talk too much about these because, well, they say it on the card themselves. It's kind of boring to, to get into with much detail. Um, they counterattacks, at least sort of. Um, but again, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this in, in a generic sense, uh, right? Usually, uh, you could just still go for the attacks, um, and most attacks provide you with enough benefit that you're not really that much out. Um, and so maybe you, you often end up going for both the defense and the attack because, yeah, well, you want to defend against your opponent's attacks and you want to get the attacks in case your opponent doesn't defend and or the, the attacks aren't that much worse than the next closest thing. If someone goes super heavy on the defense, maybe you go a little bit less heavier into the attacks. If someone skimps on the defense, you go more heavy on the attacks. Uh, if your opponent doesn't go for the attacks, maybe you skimp a little on the defense. But here's where the timing issue comes in, because they can maybe get the attacks later on. And if that's still going to punish you, then you need to invest in the defense. So you need to be able to be prepared for all possible paths that your opponent is doing. And that's kind of the biggest lesson in general of this. But okay, that's simple anti-attack reactions. Um, slightly less simple are... Um, cards that are also reactions, but maybe don't um, necessarily scream like this is going to defend me against specifically X or specifically Y. So we're talking about cards like Horse Traders, which is uh, better against a discard kind of attacks um, because it goes out of your hand and then you draw back up. Um, it has some play against other attacks, but it's usually not, not as good. Um, Trader uh, which is good against junking attacks because you can use the reaction to gain silvers. And well, okay, depending on what your deck is, silver may not be great for your deck. It's always going to be better than the junk cards, or virtually always, and I guess you can always choose not to react it. Um, tunnel. Tunnel also against discard attacks. You can discard it to gain a gold. But here we're starting to get to a thing where um, tunnel as a counter can often be a trap. Uh, so there's such a thing as a false counter where um, this even comes into play with moat sometimes, right? Um, I get tunnel. You're going to get discard attacks. I'm going to discard the tunnel. I'm going to gain gold. Well, the question you have to ask yourself is, if all of those things happen, this is the first question you have to ask yourself, if all of those things happen and I discard my tunnel and get the gold, I now have a tunnel and a gold in my deck, um, whereas, let's say the alternative, the opportunity cost for getting the tunnel was a silver. Is having a tunnel and a gold in my deck better than having a silver in my deck? Well, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. It's probably not a huge deal either way. If you're going to make me discard that tunnel multiple times, you know, I discard it three times. Now I have a tunnel and three golds in my deck, as opposed to a silver and assuming I would have wanted the silver to start with, then the tunnel and three golds is like almost always going to be better. So, so then that would be good. But you have to ask yourself, like, how often is your opponent actually going to make you discard this tunnel? Um, well, first of all, if you go super heavy on the tunnels, then they probably just won't get the discard attacks. So that's kind of the reverse counter, right? They counter your tunnel strategy by not going for the discard attack. And then you have all these junky green cards in your deck, and you're kind of bad off. So you're not remaining flexibility. You're only doing something that's good against one strategy of your opponent that they haven't committed or forced themselves to take. So um, 
if they can get away with not playing a discard attack, uh, then that can be good for them. If they have to play the discard attack, then okay, maybe it works out for you. But generally, that's not such a great strategy um, because you also need to have the tunnel at the same time as they have their discard attack. So if they're playing it every turn, then you're going to get a gold every time the tunnel comes up, but maybe they're not playing it every turn. And if they don't line up, you're pretty sad. And then that's going to happen fairly often, and you're going to be pretty sad fairly often. And it's just not the greatest place to be. Um, So, okay, also it could just be that their discard attack is still good enough against you. Um, Like, right, if, if I'm going for a strategy that silver would have been good in, gold is also good, but if I'm discarding down to three cards... I'm going to need a ton of golds before I'm still going to be able to buy province. So, yeah, maybe I'm in a better position than what if I would have had silver, but is it a good position anyway? Maybe I should have just gone for the discard attack instead because it's just the better strategy. So this is kind of a thing with the false counter. Um, but uh, similarly, like, moat can also be a false counter um, in terms of, of, like, a junking attack, right? I'm going to have a moat in my deck, and that's going to defend me. Well... You're not going to draw the moat every turn. You need to have it in your hand for it to defend you. It's going to be pretty hard to do that. Um, so it it like it helps to defend you. It defends you somewhat, but it doesn't really counter the strategy of like raw. I'm going to get a mountebank. Like still get the mountebank, and the mountebank's still going to wreck you because you're not going to be able to get the the moat every turn unless you have some some weird way to set that up. Um, I, I will say. Uh, there are ways to do that, and there are ways in which your Lighthouse and Guardian uh, are more possible to get one in play every turn, either just by spamming a ton of them, which is harder to do with Moat because it's terminal draw card, or by I'm drawing my whole deck and playing one every turn, and so then it's a little bit worse. Um, so anyway, th- these are some uh, these are some kind of simple examples, but... What I'd like to get into now is a few cards or events that kind of lend themselves, sometimes styles of decks that lend themselves to uh, being counters, and then I'm going to go for some that, that led to them, lead to themselves being countered. Um, so uh, th- these are cards that lead them into situations where you get these kind of rock, paper, scissors countering scenarios uh, fairly often, or at least fairly often when they're relevant. Um, the first and biggest thing is actually points. Um, so alternate sources of points uh, usually advantage you going for a longer build uh, to be able to access more points because there's more points available. Uh, depending on what the points are, then that makes provinces be less important, etc., etc. But this is such a huge topic that I'm actually not going to really cover that in much detail now. And that's look for another episode or minisode on that. Um, at another point in time, uh, but that is that is the biggest thing. Um, but let's talk about some some specific non-pointy kinds of cards. Um, and the first one that I would like to talk about is Salt the Earth, um, which I guess is a little bit pointy still. Sue me. And I already had the Salt the Earth episode, um, so like uh, some of this stuff's covered in there. But I, I want to cover a little bit more explicitly here how Salt the Earth can be a counter in terms of it being present on the board affects how you play, maybe even if neither player gets it. Like I covered in that episode, um, you want to make sure that you're not too slow, because if you're too slow, then you your opponent can pivot to salt the earth um, in order to take advantage 
of your slowness and, and close the game out in that way. Um, but also, you know, once you get more towards an end game, Salt the Earth has some tactical considerations uh, where, you know, your opponent need, can just get maybe three or four salts a lot easier than they can get three or four provinces, say. Um, and so you need to watch out for that, and you need to be able to think about how you're going to counter that, um, maybe by getting more points, um, maybe by uh, building in a slightly different way, maybe by, if, if it's not province pile, but you have two empty piles already, and then like there's mills or something, which is part of your deck. right? You can't lower that pile because they can salt the well. Mill's not a very good example because it costs four. They could buy that as much as they could buy the mill. Um, let's say it's like fairgrounds or something. You know, it's, it's some other third pile kind of considerations. Uh, Duchy Duke. Um, they can't buy their seventh Duke, but they can they can mill it out of the... Wow, that's kind of an uh, interesting mill. Mill, I just realized. Uh, mill it out of the supply, quote-unquote mill, not the card mill, the concept mill, um, by salting the earth on it, right? Um, so, so there can be this interplay where uh, both players go for points a little bit more, maybe a little bit sooner than they would otherwise. Neither player ends up getting salt the earth, um, or they don't get it until very late uh, because they're both playing around the other person being able to salt, so they're both greening a little bit earlier. So it looks like both of these players have just played some kind of bad strategy where they're greened too early. Um, but really it's that they've been playing around salt, the threat of salt the earth rather than necessarily just actually, e- even if they haven't actually gotten it. So salt the earth is, is one way that, that one card that can do this kind of thing. Um, another, perhaps the granddaddy of all of these is embargo. Um, so embargo is very classically a counter strategy. It, it, it's almost written on the card, uh, I guess you could say, um, Embargo is something where you can stop your opponent going from going for a particular pile of card, assuming that the curses are relevant, um, which they usually are if they're not gone already. Uh, but if they're going to be gone or they're gone already anyway, then maybe the curses aren't so relevant, and so embargo isn't an effective counter at that point anyway. Um, the tricky thing with embargo, of course, is when do you get the embargo? Um, so... If your opponent is going for some strategy where they need to be able to access a certain card and you don't need to be able to access that card, then Embargo can be really good. But in order for you to know that they're going for that, they need to have committed hard enough to that that you can take the time off to get an Embargo instead of what else you were getting and play that Embargo and Embargo that thing all before they have enough of that thing, whatever the thing is that it's countering, which can be anything, can vary wildly from board to board, which is why Embargo is so often um, a counter kind of card. Um, and, and basically, you still need to be able to be ahead, even though you've taken the time to get the Embargo instead of the other thing. You have the time to play the Embargo, and your opponent doesn't have enough of that thing yet for you to be uh, ahead behind whatever. That's why Embargo doesn't because of how slow that is, that's why Embargo doesn't come up that often. Um, but, you know, sometimes you open 5-2 when you get the Embargo as your 2, and then you can Embargo your 5. That's not really so much a counter strategy, but then maybe your opponent has gone for, committed something in their first few buys by the time you play your Embargo, 
right that uh, that you can that you can stop. Um, and if your opponent, you know, your opponent's going to have an embargo or have the ability to get an embargo, then maybe you can't commit that hard. And that's how this kind of dance of reacting to what your opponent is doing um, can come into play with embargo. Um, you know they have the embargo, so you can't commit as hard. So you have to go for something more generically good so that if they embargo the key card for you, then you can pivot out of that strategy. Um, and usually they can't just keep the embargo around in their deck forever. They're going to have to play it, and then maybe you pivot back to that strategy, or maybe you don't. You have to take stock again at that point. So embargo is often a, a countering kind of thing. Uh, tax works kind of similarly in principle. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but you know, instead of curses that's had debt, um, the debt goes away, so you would have to keep retaxing, but some decks you're able to do that. Um, but you can you can cost a, a strategy that needs to be able to use its money in a non-debt way with tax. Um, messenger. Messenger's a real interesting one uh, because it creates this kind of sub-game that's similar to the reaction space or the, the countering space. Not, not so much the reaction space. The reacting space, not the reaction card type, but reacting, this counter space. Uh, where, you know, if your opponent gets a potion because they want some some specific card, then you can counter that by messengering potions if they don't want maybe two potions in their deck. Um, now, a lot of times if I'm opening potion, getting a second potion isn't that bad. Um, and is a second potion worse than having a messenger? Um, well, sometimes it is, right? For, for the messenger to be an effective counter in the in the potion case, um, then you need uh, you need to be able to uh, say that the messenger is better than the second potion, which sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Um, but you, messenger also works in different ways. You can work with terminals. Um, you know, your opponent gets too many terminals. Now I'm going to messenger some terminals. Uh, some extra terminals, and you're going to have all this kind of junky stuff. Your opponent is trying to build some kind of a draw deck, and they don't have enough village support. Again, that's the terminal thing. Or they're trying to build a draw deck, and they do have enough village support. Well, maybe you just start shoving... You're playing a money deck, you shove extra silvers into both of your decks. The silver's probably going to help the, the, the drawing, the draw deck player uh, as well. But it's going to be significantly better for you, who's playing a money deck, um, conversely, if you're playing this drawing deck and your opponent's playing a money deck, then maybe you give them some action that's going to be terminal collision. There's a good chance there's some bad card for them as well. So there's this there's this uh, interesting effect there. Obviously, you need to be able to at least use the messenger itself in order for uh, for this to be viable in most cases. Um, but but it's a, it's a consideration that uh, that can come up a fair amount, and actually along the lines of the potion thing, I should mention that's that's often the biggest uh, the biggest use for embargo in practice. Also, they commit to potion. You know because they're getting a potion that they're trying to get these potion cost cards, so uh, you can then buy the embargo before before they've had the chance to get those potion cost cards because it takes a full shuffle to be able to have the potion to buy them. Um, and so then you can embargo it after they've gotten zero to one. You have the time to do that in the potion case. Uh, conversely, um, you can 
as the potion player buy a potion and then embargo the potion uh, if your potion strategy is so much better than what they're doing and you want to slam the door on them following you um, usually it's pretty hard to do that because uh, well if they were also thinking the potion was as good and if potion isn't uh, they would have gone for it anyway and so you kind of need the potion to be much better than what your opponent is doing in which case why aren't they going potion to start with and all of that but Potion is one of the biggest biggest things for embargo, but um, if you know that they're going for, they have to go for some other thing to make this this thing viable. Some of the alt VP cards work this way, like like uh, Silk Road, right? Um, the only reason why you would be going for all of these green cards early is if you're going for a Silk Road strategy. So I'm going to embargo the Silk Road. The only reason you're going for Duchy so early is if because you're wanting to get a lot of Dukes in the end. So I can embargo the the Duke pile, or maybe even the Duchy pile, because you need to get a lot of those. Um, and so em- Embargo counters those things pretty well. And uh, and so that's that's how a counter can come into play. And it looks like it didn't have any impact because neither player got it, because neither player dove for the Duchies. But, uh, but the reason maybe no player dove for the Duchies is because the threat of Embargo was there. So um, that's, you know, your Embargo, your Messenger, your Salt the Earth... Um, probably the biggest uh, counter card, though, uh, in Dominion is, is Young Witch. Um, and again, it's almost, almost written on the card because it has the Bane. And so you have this interaction of Young Witch and the Bane, and sometimes it doesn't matter because the Bane's just a great card and it's not really a counter. You just go for the Bane, 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 and, well, that's it. Um, there's nothing to counter because you were getting that card, you were getting those cards anyway. But sometimes the Bane is, like, pretty bad to mediocre. And if it's terrible and you just shouldn't get it anyway, then, it, you know, Young Witch is just the best strategy and you don't get the Bane and, okay, whatever. Um, But if it's kind of a mediocre card, eh, I wouldn't get it usually. But, um, you know, maybe I I get it now because, um, because it's the Bane. So this this kind of encapsulates, uh, in a nutshell, how this counter countering strategy uh, ends up working out, right? I'm going to open Young Witch uh, or not, depending on how good I think the Bane is. I'm going to open Bane depending on how much I think Young Witch is a threat, um, right? So if it's not a threat at all because there's strong trashing and I don't really care about the curses, then I'm not going to respect the Young Witch either. But let's say the cursing would be reasonably bad to bad for me. The bane is reasonably okay, but not the best thing other than it being the bane. Um, so this is the kind of situation where, where Young Witch uh, gets into this counter strategy. So I'm maybe I'm going to open Bane Bane because my opponent, I, I'm worried about them getting a Young Witch, but I don't really want the Young Witch so well myself because, you know... A, against a player who gets enough Banes, then it's not going to get through very often. And the Bane is not really that bad. So I'm going to open Bane, Bane. My opponent opens some other cards that aren't the Young Witch, they aren't the Bane. And, uh, well, they just build their deck like normal. right? I open Merchant, Merchant. Now, normally, like Merchant doesn't really do anything until you have a Silver. And uh, so normally you'd open Silver before you'd open Merchant. Um, but you think Merchant is a good enough card that you don't want to open Young Witch... But you're afraid of your opponent opening Young Witch because then they curse you and that's really bad. So you think, okay, well, I'm going to open Merchant Merchant. Your opponent goes Silver Silver or Silver Merchant maybe. Let's say Silver Silver for a moment um, because it 
there's nothing going on. It's just got to be a big money board. Well, if you've made the determination that you need to be scared of the young witch, so much so that you need to get your defense against it this much, your opponent ignores that and laughs in your face and says, well, I'm just going to get the silver. It's a better card, certainly, from the start. Well, now you need to be able to, if you're going to defend your assertion, if what you did was going to be right, you need to be able to pivot into getting the young witch and saying, you haven't defended yourself properly. I'm going to counter your lack of being a counter strategy and getting the bane by getting the young witch. Um, So you need to be able to put yourself in a position to do that. And if you can't do that, or if you think you're still behind if you do that, then maybe what you opened wasn't actually the right thing. So this is something you should think about before you choose your opener, right? Um, Right, if I go merchant, merchant, they can go silver, silver, and then I'm not in a great shape even if I get the young witch later. Ergo, merchant, merchant can't be the best thing because they have some reaction, some, not the card type reaction, but they have some move that they can make in reaction to your strategic plan that puts them in a better position. Um, So maybe merchant, merchant wasn't the right thing to do. Um, but Silver Silver maybe isn't the right thing to do because they open Young Witch Silver and they're ahead of you, right? Because you you taking the curses and you're going to be able, you're going to take some curses if you open Silver Silver and they open Young Witch. That's that's not going to be very good for you. So that's also may, uh, not the greatest thing because there's some something they can do against that too. Um, so in this case, what it would end up being is that you either need to open Young Witch Silver. And obviously, all of this is going to depend heavily on the rest of the board as well. So it's oversimplifying to only talk about a few different cards here. But, but uh, you know, open Young Witch Silver and say, well, um, the Silver is enough better of a card than the Merchant that I'm going to get it, um, particularly because young, young Witch is kind of terminal draw-ish. It's kind of filtering also, but you'd rather have the, the Silver goes better with it for your deck at least, right? Or you open uh, Young Witch Merchant because, uh, and this is probably what I would do in this three-card kingdom, is open Young Witch Merchant because, well, the Merchant doesn't do that much for me to start with, uh, but it does defend me against my opponent's Young Witches, and the curse split, I think, is going to be important enough this game that I would rather have the Merchant, which is not that much worse than a Silver to start with. I just want to hit three and four for a while until the curses are gone, and then I can move over towards adding some more silvers, um, at least in this, like, you know, two-card kingdom, right? Um, Obviously, it's going to change a lot depending on what else is there. If there's a five you want, then silver starts to look more attractive as an opener. Um, If there's some reasonable trashing, so if there's a five that's reasonable trashing, especially, you know, junk dealers on the board, then then, uh, (laughs) getting a silver so that you can maybe hope to get that junk dealer becomes a lot more attractive, um, maybe you still want the young witch. Maybe you get a messenger. Um, you know, you have to see, you have to find out. But uh, anyway, there's this complex interplay of, you know, if I do this, can they do that and be ahead? If I do this, can they do that and be ahead? If I do this, can they, can they do that and be ahead? Um, the other thing I want to mention um, before I forget to is that uh, with all of this, it might seem like um, you get an advantage from being second player. Um because you have more information when you go to buy your cards than your opponent did when they went to buy their cards. So, you know, you can pick whatever counters the strategy they are going for. Um, It almost never actually works out that way. 
And that's because your opponent doesn't have to commit to anything, really. Um, they can get, you know, just whatever they want. <laughs> um, and it doesn't have to be something that's committal, right? This is where we were talking about flexibility earlier. Um, I guess one more card that, that comes up a lot in, in uh, countering is Possession. Um, and I'm going to move to a minute in, in kinds of, to kinds of decks that get countered a, a lot. Um, but Possession... Uh, Possession is a card which counters strategies that are looking to do a lot on a turn, um, particularly mega turn strategies, um, which can quote unquote, like only go off once, right? Um, so you know, Madman is countered pretty heavily by possession because your opponent plays your Madman. If you were trying to store them up, that ain't gonna work. Um, you know, Native Village for some big mega turn. Right. Well, I'm going to possess you. I'm going to pick up your mat, and now you can't store that stuff as well. Um, coin tokens. Right. I'm going to make you spend all of your coin tokens, so you might as well not bother stockpiling them. Um, so possession can be a counter in in, in those ways, a- although very often it's not so much a counter because uh, you know, well, it's often enough just the best strategy that you need to build anyway, and then as part of the building of your payload for the, your deck is play a bunch of possessions and take some turns with their deck. Um, that's that's just the best thing often enough, so it's just the best thing in some cases. But sometimes you can counter it by going for something that greens earlier and, and makes a somewhat weaker deck to have more of a lead early enough. Sometimes that still works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, in general, usually you... you you can, this can be a counter kind of thing where, uh, you know, I'm just going to play a big money deck. Possession's not very effective against big money. Um, so I've countered your plan of going for possession. Um, the problem with that, of course, being that the deck that most effectively plays possession itself is often good enough to be able to beat a big money deck by drawing a bunch of cards and having a big payload anyway. And I don't, I don't need to waste my time getting a potion for possession. I'm just going to play, you know, a bunch of villages and smithies, and then I'm going to end up with some reasonable payload, whatever that happens to be. You know, if it's just money and buys, or I have some cost reduction, whatever the, the strong payload is on the on the board. And like, I'm just going to outrace you to the nor- in the quote unquote normal game without possession. Um, so you know, you're countering the counter to possession just by building your normal uh, drawing high payload deck. So. Uh, but possession can come up in, in, in kind of this counter way. Um, there's, there's a bunch of other cards as well. Um, but uh, I'd like to talk about now a few kinds of decks that, uh, that can get wrecked pretty hard by certain counters. So money decks, uh, I talked about on things that make money strong or weak. Um, I talked about this a little bit already, but like discard attacks, most money decks get wrecked pretty hard by your standard militia-style discard to three attack. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the scavenger stash combo deck, where you get three or four stashes, and you get two to three scavengers, and just have your eight every turn with your three stashes and a scavenger, and then you discard your deck and put another scavenger on top and rinse and repeat. Um, that deck gets wrecked, um, somewhat hard by, uh, by discard attack, they can only get six every turn, so they could buy a duchy every turn, say, after that. But uh, 
you know, if, if they're getting discarded down to three, it's going to be a little bit of bad times um, for them. So that's one thing. Um, it gets wrecked much harder by a minion attack, and a minion attack is going to be something that wrecks a lot of these kinds of I'm trying to stack my deck kind of strategies. Um, yeah, uh, so so those those are some things to watch out for when you're playing that deck. Uh, similar deal actually with uh, the quote unquote the golden deck, where you have five cards or fewer in your deck at all times, and then you're adding. Uh, adding something to your deck of return and then also removing it. So, you know, you can have a golden deck where you have, like, um, five, five cards, one of which is an island and one of which is another green card, and your other three cards make enough money to buy an island and another card. And so every turn until the islands run out, you can island something and then buy, you know, buy another island and another one of that thing. So that's it. That's this kind of a deck. Um, mandarins, there's certain mandarin combos... Um, you know, the Mandarin Horn of Plenty combo. I, I think the Mandarin Capital combo also similarly uh, gets wrecked by sometimes discard attacks. Again, the minion attack. Um, Scheme. Scheme is a card which gets countered potentially by the minion attack as well. Um, alchemists kind of get countered because you're sticking them back on your deck. Same thing with treasuries by discard attacks, and again, more heavily by the minion attack, right? This minion attack is going to counter a lot of these um, these vulnerable kinds of, of decks, but uh, discard attacks usually do reasonably well against them. Also, um, a counting house strategy where you're trying to manipulate it so that you're at the bottom of your deck a lot, so like Traveling Fair Counting House, but there's some other ones too, uh, that can get wrecked not only by a minion attack, um, it doesn't care so much about discard attacks, of course, and it doesn't care so much about junking attacks. Minion attacks can do it. But also anything that uh, that makes you um, draw cards or move through your deck. So that can be countered by something like a lot of council rooms or lost cities getting bought or governors being played for cards. That can force you to shuffle and then you're not at the bottom anymore. Um, it can also be countered... Uh, by, you know, like repeated spy attacks forcing you to trigger a shuffle. So there's a lot of ways that that, that thing, uh, this kind of strategy can be countered as well. Um, so uh, there's probably a lot more examples, and I'd love to hear back. We'd love to get feedback in the comments section, on the website, on the Discord. Which card? Discord. Um, uh, I probably shouldn't have made that joke just with myself, but I'm, you know, incorrigible. Uh, anyway, um, there's all of these things uh, that that all of these places that you can give your feedback, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear about more uh, counters, either on specific boards or especially in general about, you know, this card comes up a lot, I've found, or a lot of the time it's on the board. It's involved in some kind of a counter strategy uh, or more examples of things which can have an impact even when they're not bought or gained. Uh, just because I I personally love that kind of thing, um, and I find it a very interesting uh, idea and concept where uh, sometimes you look at a game and you're like, well, this strategy would have lost to money. Um, And maybe it would have, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the best thing, even if, you know, regular random big money would beat it. Um, 
you know, in, in some instance, the most simple version of a counter in a lot of cases is I'm going to mirror you, and then we're each going to have five cards of the key stack instead of having ten, and then, you know, if we had unfettered access to ten, we would crush someone who didn't go for it, but because I mirrored you, we've countered each other, and that's not really a counter situation like I'm talking about here, but it, it can come up also. Anyway, would love to hear feedback, would love to hear more about your thoughts on counters, what, how they come up, uh, any questions you have, all of that. You know all the places to reach us. This has been Wandering Winter with another Making Luck Minisode, and we'll see you next time.